with the Thanksgiving weekend that we have uh, at this time. So Psalm 33, uh, my wife and I have four children that are all six and under, and we're trying to teach and model for them how to respond to all kinds of things and try to teach them that there is a way uh, that you should respond every single time that somebody does something uh, for you. For example, you should say something like, thank you. Uh, genuinely express your appreciation and gratitude for uh, the small and big things alike, whether dad ties your shoes or mom packs your lunch or your grandparents decide that they're going to take you to Disney World. Whatever it is, you should say thank you. And our hope would be that that would become uh, the habit of their life and a genuine heartfelt response every single time. Right now, uh, just with the age that our children are, my wife and I spend a lot of time reminding our kids after something happens, hey, did you say thank you? Uh, So-and-so just did something really nice for you. You should go say thank you for how they helped you or whatever the case may be. Go say thank you. And our hope is, as I said, that they will grow into grateful adults who habitually respond that way in gratitude without the need to be reminded. We're not going to remind them for years and years to come to do that. You know, if you're a child of God, you have a heavenly father uh, that you have so much to thank him for. And who your father is and what your father does should cause you to respond a certain way over and over and over and over and over again as the habitual response of your heart. Uh, The fact of the matter is is that people need reminded to praise the Lord. It's not just our, our kids that need reminded to say thank you. It's people like you and me that need reminded to say, God, Thank you. Psalm 33 is a reminder to do that very thing. It was originally penned as a call for Israel and now for you to praise the Lord today as a response to who he is and what he's done on your behalf and the type of things that he does. To borrow the language of Psalm 33, it is fitting for you to praise God every single day of your life. Not 90% of the days, Not on the good days, but not the bad days. Every single day of your life. Join me in Psalm 33. I just want to read through this text as we begin. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits or is fitting the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright and all of his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. 
A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him. Because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Uh, I want to put before you two reminders this morning from this text. First of all, you have been called to praise the Lord today. Uh, Look back at verses 1 to 3 again, and and let's just try to capture what the psalmist has said here. He says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody with him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Uh, You are being called to praise the Lord today. And to do that, uh, not half-heartedly, but with everything that you've got, with the entirety of your being. God calls you to praise him uh, with freshness. He talks about singing a new song and to do it with skill. Uh, Speaking of of, uh, the instruments and doing it with fervor and life. Specifically in these verses, we're called to thank the Lord and do it with singing, shouting, and instruments. Can you say uh, life? Do it with life. Our praise to God should be living praise from living hearts and it should be full of life. We're being summoned and called not to uh, dead praise from dead hearts with no life, but living praise from living hearts with life. Back to the teaching the kids to say thank you. I think this is a bit like the difference between saying something like thanks. You know, just sort of the apathetic, half-hearted thank you. And and going to someone and saying to them, thank you so much. Thank you for what you did for me. That was so kind. You didn't have to do that. Thank you. You've been called to praise the Lord like that today with life and something that's real and authentic. You may feel like praising God right now. I mean, there are probably some of you who are sitting here and you go, wow, it's Thanksgiving weekend. I just feel it, you know? I feel thankful. Or you might say, I want to. I mean, truly, I really do. But I cannot fabricate that. And my feelings just aren't there right now. And, And you may say, you know, you don't know what I'm going through. Or I'm just not in the mood. And I would say, I understand. I mean, I I may not understand exactly what you're going through, but I think we've all been there where, yes, I should be praising God, but uh, I just don't feel it right now. And here's what I want you to do. Take a look at God with me and just see if you don't change your mind. Because worship is something that we do as a response to facts and truths about God. It's something that we do in response to who he is and what he does. I think we need to remember that you and I have not been called to some kind of unfounded praise. You know, just have all this emotion and this praise based on nothing. We have not been called to unfounded praise. And so I want to bring you a second reminder this morning. You have good cause to praise the Lord today. Verses 4 to 5 seem to be a summary outline of the rest of the psalm, which then fleshes out four reasons to praise God every single day of your life, including today. 
So why don't you look at verses four to five with me at this kind of summary outline of the psalm at the four reasons that you have to praise the Lord today. Verses four and five. Four, kind of bullet point number one, for the word of the Lord is upright. And number two, all his work is done in faithfulness. And number three, he loves righteousness and justice. And number four, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's take a closer look at these four reasons for praise. First reason for praise, you should praise him. You should praise God. We could start with because of his voice. Verse four says that the word of the Lord is upright. And now the psalmist is going to tell us more about God's word and more about his voice. And and just let us pause and think and reflect upon that for a moment as we would praise God and be reminded that the praise that we're summoned to is not unfounded praise. Look at the voice of God. We're reminded that God's voice is extremely powerful. Look at verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. And the psalmist is just highlighting a very simple reality that God literally spoke the entire universe into existence. He spoke the hosts of heaven. He's talking about the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets and the galaxies. He spoke all of those things into existence just simply by the word of his mouth. The book of Genesis records uh, this language for us. Genesis 1 verse 3, we we, we read that God said this. He said, let there be light. And then what do we read after that? There was. He spoke and there was light. Let there be this and there was that. Let there be this and there was that. Boom, 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 boom. All by the word of God's mouth. And then look at verse 7. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps. And storehouses. Uh, Back in Genesis, we find that God also spoke the boundaries of the ocean uh, and the oceans and the waters and the seas into being. And he even now holds the waters of the sea uh, like heaps of grain in a bin or a storehouse. And at the voice of God's command, he unleashes those waters. He unleashes those waters and floods and and rains and also um, hurricanes and and such. Think about Hurricane Ian. I think there's another one that's uh, in the news now as well. Ian has recently been striking the coast of Florida and I think other places as well, wreaking all kinds of havoc. And that hurricane swirls and it strikes, uh, the Bible tells us, at the voice of God. Sometimes we call these things with insurance claims, we we talk about acts of God. And according to this text, we might say that we could make be a little bit more descriptive. It's an act of the voice of God. God's voice is extremely powerful. And God's voice should produce worship. Look at verses eight and nine. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And then this explanation, verse 9, for he spoke and it, all of creation, came to be. He commanded and it, again, all of creation stood firm. How do we respond to a God who, who literally speaks things into existence? 
How do we respond to a God uh, that, that Colossians talks about holds the universe together, make, causes it to stand after he spoke it into existence? How do we respond to a God who literally commands every single aspect of creation? God commanded the sun to rise this morning and it rose. Well, verses 8 to 9 tell us exactly how we should, should we should we should respond. I'll get it out eventually. Those verses tell us to fear the Lord and to stand in awe and amazement and wonder and fear of him. And that command there in verses 8 to 9 is for all the inhabitants of the world. That command excludes no one and no moment of time. Not even on your really bad days. Verse 9 teaches that all of creation stands firm. Not only does God sustain the universe so that, that it might be said to stand and hold together. But at this very moment, all of creation stands before the Lord as his servant, ready to obey his voice. In John chapter 11, the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, stood before the tomb of a dead man by the name of, Lazar- by the name of Lazarus. And he spoke into the chambers of death to a dead man. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And out Lazarus came. He is a God who wills life into existence by the word of his mouth. If you're a Christian and you're struggling to praise God today, have you soon forgotten the day that Jesus Christ stood before your dead tomb of a quote-unquote life and stood before the dark chambers of your dead soul and with his powerful life-generating voice cried out, Come forth. And by the word of his power, we're told God birthed you. God gave you life. Eternal life. And you may sit here and go, I want to praise God, but I don't feel like it. Why should you praise God today? You should praise God because of his voice. And like the rest of creation, you should stand before him as his servant, ready to obey him. God, you are the one who spoke life. By the word of your power, whether that was creation or calling me to new life, your voice is powerful. The second reason for praise, you should praise him uh, because of his mind, because of his thoughts. In verses 6 to 9, if verses 6 to 9 were all about the word of God, then verses 10 to 12 are all about his will. And the idea is that whatever it is that's up there swirling around in the mind of God, whatever God's thoughts are, they happen and they come to pass. What's in the mind of God, his counsel and his plans, happens. Uh, The summary phrase for this idea appears to be found in verse 4. If verses 4 and 5 are are kind of like an outline, then the corresponding phrase in verse 4 is this, all his work is done in faithfulness. Day after day, God faithfully accomplishes his plan in a way that is always faithful and true to his character. Always. And we see in verses 10 to 12 that God's plans triumph over all other plans. Look at verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. 
And it's really a, a, a relatively simple thought that the plans of earthly kings, the plans of nations, the, the plans of people don't rival the plans of God. God foils and frustrates the plans of men and his plans triumph over all other plans. He's the king. God's plans triumph over all other plans. In verse 11, God's plans always, literally always come to pass. Look at verse 11. The counsel, again, we're talking about what's in the mind of God. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans, we could speak of the intentions of his heart to all generations. Whatever God has decreed or planned in eternity past always happens in real time. He is the undeterred Lord of history. His plans come to pass. And no one and nothing ever foils or frustrates God's plans or says, get out of the way. Nothing ever frustrates what God wants to do. God's mind, his plans, and his intentions, those things happen. And perhaps that gives you a bit of a cause for concern. I mean, when you think about God like that, does it perhaps bother you a little bit? Those realities could make God scary, right? Because they portray the fact, the true reality that God is mighty and he's powerful and he's strong. And whatever God thinks in his thoughts, those things happen. They're accomplished. He does whatever he wants on earth. And maybe you sit there and you think, you know, God, (laughs) I don't like what you're doing on earth. And I'll just say, listen, Those realities need not scare you or frustrate you if you are one of God's children. I mean, it should absolutely horrify you. If if you're not a child of God or you fall into the category that God describes here, these wicked nations and wicked men and God frustrating and thwarting their plans. But if you're a child of God, it should literally have the opposite effect. God's plans triumph over all their plans. They always come to pass. But I really want you to catch what what verse 12 has to say. God's plans center on a people. You realize that at the very heart of God's plan is a people. At the very center of God's mind, literally at the very heart of it, is a people. God's people are are at the heart of God's plan. What a comfort that is. You go, wow, he's so strong, he's so powerful, he's so mighty. Whatever's in his mind happens. And yet at the very heart of all that is a particular group of people. That was true in the Old Testament with Israel and it's true in the New Testament with the church today. Look at verse 12. This is a a psalm of Israel and after verses 10 and 11 and the counsel and the plans of God and thwarting the plans of the nations, Israel comes to the conclusion in verse 12, then blessed is the nation, then blessed is the people whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Again, this is a Jewish psalm. And we know from the Old Testament that God had chosen Israel as his special heritage people, not because they were great, not because they were mighty, not because they were better, but he had set his heart and affection on these people and his plans and his intentions were through that one particular weak and broken and defiled nation that he would bless all the other nations. 
And he would use Israel as his servant to accomplish that. Israel was at the heart of God's plan. Uh, You may recall a verse like Exodus 6 verse 7 which says this. uh, God said to Israel, I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. There's a special relationship here. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you up from out of from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I am your God and I have saved and delivered you and called you out of Egypt. At the heart of God's plans is his people and Israel could celebrate that. And though the parallels may not be exact and and, and precise all the way throughout the, the whole flow of scripture, the church can celebrate the same thing. Because a church is, as well, we might say a special people. A people that God says in Ephesians chapter 1 that he chose for himself in eternity past. A people that have been on God's heart and at the heart of God's plans for a very, very, very long time. And if there's any question about God's thoughts and his intentions and his plans and his counsel, he's just told us right in this text, listen, at the very heart of all that I'm doing, I have a special people. When you zoom out on Google Earth, which is kind of cool, right? I mean, it's like you can back out and back out and back out until you, you can see like the globe, planet Earth. And when you do that, it makes you feel minuscule. It's like, wow, Earth is really big. But it's also kind of fun to, from the view of the globe, to zoom in and zoom in and you find the country that you live in you find you find north america you find canada you find alberta uh you you find the edmonton region you find uh your neighborhood you find your little house your little driveway your little car you and i think that's kind of what god is doing in these verses and it starts with god's plans are so big They are so mighty. They are so powerful. What's in the mind of God happens. And he starts by giving us this massive perspective and we go, wow, God is great. But then as the verses go on, it's like he starts to zoom in and zoom in and zoom in and zoom in. Right to us, his people. At the heart of God's massive and awesome plans are his people. Little people like you and me and churches like Beaumont Baptist Church were just everyday people trying to live the Christian life and God says, right at the heart of my plans is people like you and a church of people that I've called to myself and I have people like that all over the world and wherever my people are, guaranteed that is where the heart of my plan is. You should praise God because of his mind. Praise him that his plans triumph over all of their plans. They always come to pass and they center on small, insignificant people and groups, churches like you and like me and like Beaumont Baptist Church. A third reason for praise, you should praise him because of his eyes. Now, verse 5 says, back to kind of the summary outline part of the psalm, it says that he loves righteousness and justice. And in some way, shape, or form, that statement seems to relate uh, not only to where God looks with his eyes, but also what he does in response to what he sees. He responds to everything he sees with righteousness and justice because he says, that's what I love. 
I love righteousness and justice. So let's talk for a moment about God's eyes. Looking at verses 13 and 14 and following. God's eyes, we read, look from heaven to earth. Look at verses 13 and 14. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. God sits, he's enthroned as king in the heavens. And the text says that he looks both down and he looks out from his throne. He looks down. I think it's just a simple reminder there. You know, God doesn't look up at anybody. There's there's nothing, where would he look? There's no other throne. There's no other God. There's not something above him. There's no throne higher than his. The text says he looks down and it also says that he looks out. From his high position, he can see it all. God's eyes look from heaven to earth and God's eyes see everything. He doesn't miss the smallest detail. He doesn't miss the smallest event. God sees every person and every deed, but there's more. God says, I even see the thoughts of a man's heart. I see, I know what's inside people's hearts. Look at verses 13 to 15. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Verse 15, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all. All their deeds. Nothing is hidden from God. Not your smallest fear or worry. Maybe the thing, it's so small, almost it feels that way that you'd be embarrassed to tell a friend about it, but it somehow feels big to you. Nothing is hidden from God, not your smallest fear or worry, not your greatest disappointment, not the smallest injustice, nor the greatest one. When I was in university, a friend and I hiked up uh, this really cool mountain that had uh, like this big flat top and it was right next to a a large, large city. And I find it's always amazing how far you can see at the top of a mountain like that. I mean, one hour you're, you're in a parking lot and you can't see very far at all in this massive city. And an hour or two later, you've climbed to the, the top of this mountain and it's like, you can see everything. You can see so much right there in your line of sight. It's awesome. And this passage is just saying, God, God's not sitting on some little mountaintop somewhere. He's literally sitting on a throne in the heavens in the highest of the heights and he literally sees everything. He misses nothing. God's eyes look from heaven to earth. His eyes see everything. And guess what else? God's eyes, much like our last point, are on his people. His eyes are focused somewhere in particular. They're dialed in somewhere. They're dialed in on his people. Skip down to verse 18 for a moment. And it says this, Behold, look. As Israel praises God, they say, Look, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. It's on those who hope or put their confidence in his steadfast love. In other words, those who trust him. I've, I've drawn that verse to your attention 
Uh, but it's actually within, it's smack dab in the middle of a much larger section on deliverance. And that deliverance theme literally runs through every single line of verse 16, 17, and 19. The verse that I just read is sandwiched right in the middle of all these verses about deliverance. And verse 18 stands right at the heart of that theme. So for example, if you look back at verse 16, you'll see the word uh, saved in line one. And then in line two, you'll see the word delivered. If you look at uh, verse 17, you'll see salvation in line one and you'll see rescue in line two. And if you skip down to verse 19, in line one, you'll see the word deliver. And in line two, you'll see keep them alive. That's the theme of, of this little section. It's salvation, deliverance, rescue. These verses are developing the idea that in your times of greatest trouble, difficulty, danger, your great hope and deliverance, a great hope of deliverance and grace are wrapped up in the Lord. And it's like the Psalms reminding you of this. Let your confidence be that God's eyes are on you. What does that mean? Well, first, on the one side, it means this. Don't put your hope in man or his strength. Look at, back at verses 16 and 17. And all this, again, is within this context of salvation or deliverance. Verse 16. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse as mighty as it is, is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Psalmist says, hey, whatever it is, a massive army, superior uh, warriors, powerful horses, these are the things that we place our hope and confidence in for protection, victory, and conquest. These are the things where our eyes look. Hordes of money, superior physicians, advanced technology, modern science, ourselves and our intellects and our abilities and our strengths and our powers and our stamina and our endurance and our stick to and all the rest. And the text just says, why on earth would you put your hope in those things? Don't put your hope in those things. Don't put your hope in man or his strength. Yeah, God may use those things, but they can't be your confidence. Rather, verses 18 and 19, put your hope in the Lord. Look at those verses. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. In times of trouble, difficulty, distress, pain, danger, threat, obstacles, whatever, the, the psalmist is just reminding us, what should you do? Well, cast your eyes on the God who's already looking at you. Your eyes should meet his. What are you hoping in right now? You should praise God because of his eyes. They look from heaven to earth. They see everything and they are honest people. And one final reason for praise 
Number four, you should praise him because of his heart. The last line of verse five says that the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. When something is full, it means that there's not really room for anything else. There's not room for more. If I fill a jar full of water all the way to the brim, there's no room for any more. And that's what God says. The earth is full of something. All the way to the brim. And what's it full of? The earth is bursting full with the steadfast love of the Lord. God's heart is full of steadfast love. And as we come to verses 20 and 22, we see how people live when they truly believe that God's love towards them is steadfast and that he is as this psalm describes him. God told the nation of Israel again and again and again, let me tell you about my love, and I again and again will characterize it as faithful, loyal, and steadfast and unwavering, despite all of your garbage. (laughs) I mean, no matter what Israel is doing, God says, here is who I have pledged myself to be to you. And if you believe that, that that is the type of love that God, God has towards his people, then what that means is that you can respond in faith in times of tension and uncertainty and challenges in your life. What does that look like? Well, first, it means to wait on the Lord. That's what God wants you to do, to wait on him. Look at verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Waiting? Wait with patience and confidence, knowing that both help and protection come from God. And however God orders and arranges things, whether it's what you would choose or not, it is perfect and it is good. Wait on the Lord. And second, if if you have faith that God is who he says he is, that means that you should rejoice in the Lord. Look at verse 21. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. When you put verse 20 and verse 21 together, you have a people who are experiencing joy and gladness in the Lord at the very same time that they are waiting for him for help and deliverance. How do you have those two things together? You know that can be your experience? If you'll look up and look at God and recognize and affirm who he said he he is, in faith, you wait on him, you can rejoice in him. And third, third response of faith is to pray to the Lord. Look at verse 22. There's a prayer that concludes this psalm. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Uh, the prayer is something to this effect. God, our eyes are on you. And we trust in you. And God, please keep being who you have always been and who you have pledged yourself to be. It's it's like they're praying the very thing that God has already said he would be and it's an act of faith. You should praise God because of his heart. It's, It's full of steadfast love. His love is faithful and unwavering. You have good cause to praise the Lord today. And this psalm has just highlighted a few. His word, his mind, 
his eyes, and his heart. And I want to ask you in conclusion, how are you going to respond to the greatness and goodness of God today? It is fitting, this psalm says, for you to praise God every single day of your life. Verse 1, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits, it's fitting for the upright. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me at this time?